is 1.37 p.m. Stories of hustle and grind from the intersection of culture, style, music, and sports. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it is Friday, January 29th. It is around noon here in San Diego, California. And I have the pleasure of talking to one of the most fascinating Twitter follows in my stream. And not only is it just that, but perhaps in the most interesting of weeks in the financial sphere. Now, I am by no means a stock expert. I am no means a financial expert. But I am fascinated by this man's work on Twitter and the information that he's able to provide to his followers. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is Joe Pompliano. Joe, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Bo. Thank you for having me. In all seriousness, you do post some of the most interesting stuff on Twitter. And I I think when we even first interacted, I told you that, like, dude, I just cannot get enough of what you're doing. When did this kind of start for you? Yeah, yeah. So I'll just give you a quick background. I um, So my, my previous experience, I worked at Octagon Sports Agency uh, when I was in college, did a summer internship there and stuff. Um, I grew up with four brothers and everything like that. So I played sports my whole life, right? So basketball, football, baseball, the whole deal. Um, and, you know, I thought sports was something I wanted to go into, dive a little deeper into for a career. Uh, and, and after the internship, I really liked it and stuff, but I got an opportunity to go work um, in finance in New York City. So I've worked at, at JP Morgan for the last few years now. Uh, and then when the pandemic started, I kind of just got an opportunity to, you know, sit down and think things through a little more. And I realized that, um, you know, I missed the sports aspect a little bit and I wanted to kind of merge the two together, right? So I started thinking about, uh, you know, this, not only sports business, but from a personality standpoint on Twitter and newsletter and all that type of stuff, right? So uh, a lot of the content I do is stuff that I was already really enjoying, right? Like, you know, just sharing them online, right? So I wasn't really tweeting previously. Um, I'd never written an article in my life, right? So like that was all very new to me. Um, but yeah, I started a newsletter on Substack and I started tweeting out different things. Uh, and what I found, right, was like similar to you or other people, a lot of other people were interested in this stuff, right? So um, whether it's breaking down people's contracts, whether it's, you know, fun facts about how much a fighter is making in a, in, in a pay-per-view event, whether it's, you know, it could be any of that stuff. But um, there's a lot of, you know, money behind the business of sports um, that I don't think a lot of fans really get an eye on. Uh, so it's been fun to kind of dig up some of that stuff and and put it out on Twitter, and the response has been good. Have you had any pushback from uh, sports execs, sports higher ups, saying like, "Yo, like, don't share this"? Maybe not even that criminally yeah. or that black and white, but is there anything where like the sports teams kind of want it to be hush hush? Yeah, so I think it's I, I think maybe part of the interesting thing for me is that. A lot of the stuff I do uh, is public to some degree already. It's just like kind of finding it and putting it together and, and piecing stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I don't spend my day going around, you know, chasing sources, asking people a bunch of questions, yeah. right? Like if, if something requires, you know, me checking on something or making sure it's true to some degree, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but I certainly am not, you know, chasing stories, doing interviews, all that type of stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of merging two things together. So maybe I'll see one thing on one side. I'll think to myself, oh, you know, how does this affect something else? Go look that up and put them together and put them in a tweet. Right. So a lot of it is already public, um, to some degree. And then, yeah, I think it's just being respectful of, you know, you don't want to, um, 
you know, like someone's house online is, is, you know, public knowledge. Anyone can go see it. It's that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but maybe more personal things, you know, about their life or their finances you don't want to share, uh, whether it's public or not. Or, you know, I try to stay away from bad news or people losing money on deals or stuff like that. Um, just because I don't think that's, you know, the right way to go. Um, but yeah, I think, I think most of the response has been fine. I think most of it is public anyway. So there hasn't really been too much, uh, pushback. Sure. So I definitely want to talk about fighting. I mean, you know, in the fight, this is what I do. I love MMA. I love boxing. I went to school. I got a sports journalism, a sports broadcasting degree in the journalism school at the university of Missouri. And when quarantine hit, I was doing all sorts of sports, whether it was NBA, I was working for the San Diego Padres radio station, quarantine hit and all sports stopped. The only exception was the UFC. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to stop making content. I'll just stick with what's available. So I was going exclusively with MMA fight related content. And that's when I reached out to 1.37 PM. 1.37 PM is obviously part of Vayner right? Vayner sports. And they yeah. hired Lloyd Pearson, uh, earlier this year, who's like the second biggest MMA agent in the world. So I saw, I, I kind of saw the puzzle pieces coming together and that's how I ended up a little bit with one thirty-seven PM. So I do want to talk about fighting a little bit yeah. here in 10 years. What will be the biggest difference we will see in fight contracts in the UFC or in MMA in general compared to what we're seeing now? Uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with the UFC, you know, this is probably something that you have more experience of like kind of what the reception is than me. Um, but from, you know, from an outsider's perspective, someone who just focuses on kind of the money perception of it, um, I think a huge change is going to be, you know, when we're talking UFC specific, maybe kind of, uh, you know, Dana White's involvement and in not only uh, like how these guys get paid, but how much influence and power he has over um, you know, their ability to be on certain fights or be with the organization and stuff like that. Right. Because, um, I think you hear some pushback obviously from time to time about, he really decides a lot of these guys careers, right? Like, and if he yeah. doesn't, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't say that he does this obviously, but, um, if he doesn't like someone, he has a major influence over kind of, um, you know, the perception or the, the trajectory of their career to some degree. So I think, um, you know, uh, people have talked about unionizing fighters in MMA and stuff like that. Um, that that's probably a little over my head as a, as to well, whether that will happen or not. Um, but I could see something like that happening. Sure. I, I think a lot of the other leagues have adopted, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, players associations or whatnot to fight for players rights. You, you look at the NBA and the NFL and even the WNBA now is, you know, paying players 50% of all the revenue. Um, it's obviously much, much lower for the UFC. Uh, so, you know, maybe it doesn't get to 50%, maybe it gets a little higher, maybe fighters are guaranteed certain salaries or certain fights. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of that's up in the air, uh, but they certainly have a good structure going to maximize returns right now um, from an organizational standpoint. Another thing that benefits them is the way pay builds is with number of fights. So as a guy progresses in his career with the UFC, once you reach say it's 10 fights. I'm making that up. I don't know what the number is. Say you reach 10 yeah. fights, you get an increase in uh, pay per fight, but it's the easiest way to make sure you have cheaper, younger talent that you just kind of plug and chug in as you yeah. go along. I'm a huge fan of the UFC and it's really for the exact reason that Dana White is in charge because you have boxing where you can't get any fights made. You have four different promotions. You're on four different channels 
four different titles. Like it's such a mess over there. You know, you strip away a little bit of the freedom from boxing and then you have the product of the UFC, which it's really what makes it that much better in the next, I think it's in the next three months, we have like seven or eight title fights and they're all amongst either top one or top two contenders. Is there any way boxing could get to a point? What would, what would it have to be? What would the change have to be for boxing to be able to reach that championship versus number one contender consistently over the year? What would have to change? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of what you just said, right? There's going to have to be structural changes because, um, you know, I, I don't even want to get down the path to boxing. I think it's embarrassing really to some degree about what it's turned into. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I've, you know, I've encouraged just kind of these celebrity fights, but um, as a, you know, a, a spectator of the sport, you know, actual fans of it, I'm sure they don't, uh, they're not very happy with kind of what's turned into to boxing. Uh, but that's kind of the result of it, right? Like if you don't have guys that are consistently fighting the best of the best and these fights are taking forever to happen, um, you know, even the most public facing ones, right? Like Mayweather and Pacquiao and all this stuff, like these fights are happening way later than they should be um, if they're happening at all. And a lot of these guys are building up, you know, in in boxing, the joke is to outsiders that it's very easy to build up a, you know, nine, 10, 15 and 0 record because they're just picking these fights that, you know, aren't necessarily as challenging or the fights that people want to see. So I think, you know, th- there's going to have to be changes. Otherwise, the UFC is going to continue to thrive in that aspect. And, and I agree. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff, but I'm a huge fan of Dana White. Um, I think, you know, what he's done with the UFC is incredible. I did a thread on him once on Twitter. Like, I, I think the numbers were he didn't put a single dollar into the UFC and he made like $350 million, which is like just absurd, right? Like, the, you know, that's just crazy numbers uh, to, to kind of take over. And he's obviously done a really good job. Uh, and, and he's there for a reason, right? I think they, I, you probably know better than me, but I think they extended him or, you know, a year or two ago and made yeah. sure he'll be there for a while. So they're obviously happy also. Well, when they, they sold to WME uh, back yeah. in 2016, a big part of that deal was that Dana White stays on board as the head of the company. Like yeah. even if, even if he's not one of the, um, he's not an owner, but they wanted him to stay on and say, no, he will remain the face of the company. So I think it's been well understood for a long time, his role in the company. You mentioned the celebrity fight type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were an agent of a fighter, of a guy just outside top five, you know, he's not a champion per se. How would you encourage your fighter to capitalize on this movement? Would you say, yo, we have to get on this Jake Paul, Ben Askren undercard. There's going to be eyes. We do whatever we can to do it. What what would your encouragement be um, in that hypothetical role? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't know necessarily how they think about it from the inside perspective. I think it all comes down to the money, though, right? Like if you're if you're, you know, that type of fighter who can't get that big fight and it's going to be a payday for you or whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, But I think it obviously depends on what stage of the career you're at. Right. So like Mayweather's doing one. He's, you know, going to knock him out in (laughs) I don't even know, (laughs) you know, whatever seconds uh if he wanted to which i'm sure he'll wait and, and not do that but um he's a showman you know, like, he knows what he's doing yeah exactly you know like if he it, it depends what stage of your career you're at like i don't think a lot of these guys that are trying to be legitimate champions and build up and you know get their record impressed and stuff are going to do it um uh, but if someone's going to pay you a few million bucks to go in there and uh fight on the undercard of an event and uh you know for 20 30 minutes of your time it makes a lot of sense you've seen in the last 
maybe last two years or so, a couple elite fighters, I mean, really, really elite fighters from the UFC have kind of decided to test their value, see what they're worth in the open market. You have the professional fighting league, you have Bellator, you have one championship. So whether it's Demetrius Johnson, Eddie Alvarez, Anthony Pettis in the last month, Rory McDonald of recent years, what is, you don't know the answer. If you had to speculate though, what is the big difference in pay? I mean, how much more are these guys making when they're allowed to have those advertisements on their shorts, on their shirts, on the hat post fight? Yeah. Is it really worth the big change to leave, you know, the top dog of the UFC or is it kind of just see what you're worth and go test it? Yeah, I don't know. I guess my question would be, do they come back? <laughs> are a lot of these guys coming back or are they So done? far no. So far yeah. no, that but it's early. It's early. And really yeah. the the deal with Reebok is still somewhat recent. I mean, in the scale of of sports history, the move to all fighters having having to wear Reebok is yeah. relatively new. So, no it hasn't happened yet, but I don't doubt that in the near future it would it would start to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends too. A lot of this stuff is like on a per fighter basis, right? So, like, um, you know, Ben Askren's fighting uh, one of the Paul brothers now, right? So, like, those deals obviously have to get okayed by Dana and all that kind of stuff if they're under contract. Um, and like, you know, Dana's not going to do that for uh, McGregor unless the number, like, the number for McGregor is a lot different than it is for Ben Askren, right? Yeah. So, like, I, I think it really just depends on a per fighter, like what they're what they're making in the UFC, what they can make somewhere else, how much those advertisements are really going to pay. Uh, but I think it, you know, it depends on what type of fighter you are. It depends on what stage of the career you're at. It depends on what Dana's willing to pay you really. Right. So, um, I think one of the cool parts about the UFC is that like everything is kind of, uh, you know, er everything can be negotiated to some degree. Right. So like when the Floyd Mayweather and McGregor fight came up, like, you know, at first Dana was like, it's not going to happen. He's under contract. And then, you know, once you figure out how much money can be made, the Uf the UFC is going to get a piece of that. I'll, you know, it's, so it starts to make um, a lot more sense when you start to think about it from that perspective. Uh, but yeah, I think it just depends, you know, on a per fighter basis. You think you mentioned the May Mayweather McGregor thing, and obviously the UFC ended up with a cut of that. Um, mm -hmm. Ben Askren in an interview this week didn't realize that he's like, oh, I didn't know the UFC got a cut. I don't know if he was playing dumb or maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. It does not sound like the UFC will be getting a cut of the Askren-Paul fight, despite Askren is still under contract with the UFC. As you said, like they had to okay it, and they said, go do your thing without asking for a cut. Did that interest you at all? Was that a surprising move? I honestly didn't even know that. I, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, I, I don't know. I assume that they had worked something out, I guess, just because of what happened last time. I think, uh, yeah, that's that's honestly surprising. I would think that they would try to do it, even though, I mean, he's coming off surgery, right? So he's, yeah. Um, I don't know. Surgery. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what, um, you know, what his contract was like with the UFC currently, but maybe it makes sense from the US, UFC's perspective not to do it. Uh, but I can't imagine that was, you know, an easy, like a good call or an easy call for them to be like, no, go ahead and go fight and then we won't take anything. What's the biggest mistake you see athletes making with the structuring of their contracts right now? Like something that just bugs you and you're like, how is this happening, guys? There's no way you can continue to make the same mistake over and over. If there's one, what would it be? I don't know. Um, I mean, because when you think about it, like a lot of these guys, I they're, they're not the ones doing it, right? So like yeah. a, a lot of these guys aren't um, – 
and, and with like the more mature, uh, you know, structured professional sports leagues, like we're talking NBA, NFL, these guys, all these deals are really, really kind of like, you know, they can be hammered out in an hour if you really wanted to, to some degree, right? Okay. Like once you get the pay down, once you get the guarantees and some incentives, everything else is, you know, a playbook of just, you know, the contract's already done. You're just plugging and playing different numbers. Um, so when you talk about like deadlines to get contracts done, sometimes you'll hear it's not done and, and you know, the deadline's midnight and it's 9 p.m. and it's not done and then it'll get done like that, right? Because yeah. it'll be signed and everything. It's just, you know, super, uh, super easy. But with the UFC, yeah, they obviously have a little more leeway on, um, you know, structure and negotiation and all that type of stuff. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, um, from their perspective, like they would consider the biggest mistake is. But a lot of the other leagues, I think it's, you know, it's not really up to them. In the last five years or so, maybe, top-ranked boxing has partnered with ESPN. And now a lot of their premier matchups, whether that was – Manny Pacquiao versus Jeff Horn, or it was Terrence Bud Crawford versus Kell Brook, are live on ESPN. Tiafimo Lopez versus Vasily Lomachenko are live on ESPN, not pay-per-view. Do you think more fights are going to go in that direction? You had the UFC on ABC last week, or do you think long-term the answer for combat sports is pay-per-view? Yeah, I think um, that's a good one. I think it – what we've seen, right, is that a lot of these, uh, you know, direct to consumer streaming platforms, whether it's an ESPN Plus, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, Peacock just paid up for WWE, right? So yeah. I think a lot of these guys are willing to pay top dollar for sports assets for, for a few different reasons, right? So I think um, not only is content super hard to come by in today's world, so it's, you know, it's becoming increasingly more expensive, which is why we're seeing, uh, you know, guys like Dan Levitard and 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 Skipper from ES, previously ESPN, you know, kind of go make their own media content creation company, right? So like assets are really hard to come by and they're increasingly getting more expensive. Um, but on the sports side, it's even worse, right? So like there's things like The Office and all that kind of stuff, Yellowstone that are going on to Peacock's paying up for. But sports assets, there's only so many. And the big leagues aren't going to sell, um, you know, a large portion of their games or their events to these streaming services just because they don't have the audience size right now, right? So like, a, uh, one of these platforms is never going to be able to get, um, you know, the, the 30 million people that'll watch the AFC championship game. Right. So I think it really depends, um, on how much these guys are willing to pay. ESPN obviously made a massive commitment to the UFC, uh, and, and that's helped not only from a viewership perspective, there's obviously pay-per-view mixed in and everything, but, um, ESPN got a bunch of subscribers out of it. Right. So I I've written about it before, like the UFC was the first league to, uh, start back up after the pandemic, right? So they got a lot of crap for that. Dana White received a lot of negative, you know, pub, uh, publicity and media attention. Um, and, and some people mentioned or or assumed that they didn't really have a choice, right? Because the UFC had to put on 40, 42 live fights or whatever it was for ESPN. Um, but like the thing I always think about is like the ESPN was never going to cancel that contract based on uh, the U the UFC's inability to deliver 42 fights. I don't think at least, right? You know, it's obviously mm -hmm. a big deal, but it's a seven, eight, nine year relationship at this point, talking what they've already done and what they're going to do. Um, and they've gotten millions of ESPN plus subscribers. It's not like they have a ton of ESPN plus subscribers anyways. This isn't a Disney plus whatever. They have what I think it was 13, 14 million. So it's not, um, you know, a large chunk of them came from the UFC. I think, um, you know, I'm kind of going down a rant here, but it's like, uh, I, I think, you know, the, the DTC play for a lot of these companies is important. 
Um, I'm more interested to see how they mix that in with pay-per-view to kind of get uh, a lot of these revenue numbers where they are now. In 2020, obviously the like landscape of short sports shifts in a major, major way. And for nine months, you didn't see Canelo Alvarez, the biggest draw in boxing. You didn't see Conor mm-hmm. McGregor for what, 10 months. You didn't see Ryan Garcia. You didn't. The huge names, the big draws, you didn't see fight. And obviously that's changed over the last month or so. Is that, obviously it has something to do with the gate revenue, right? People being in the seats, in the stands, front row, selling out the ringside seats at Vegas. How much of a pay difference do you think fighters like those big three that we just mentioned have seen from pre-COVID to now? in from like yearly earnings or like what they'll make in a fight right probably now. in a, in the single fight so uh mcgregor versus poirier last week with yeah. two thousand fans in the crowd versus packing in ninety thousand at dallas cowboy stadium or whatever it is what yeah. what is the difference how much of that usually goes to the ufc or how much of that ends up with the fires even if you know or don't know yeah, I don't know necessarily from like a percentage standpoint for the UFC. Um, a lot of these leagues, like I assume it's probably similar to what these other leagues get, which is around, uh, we'll call it like on the lower end is 30 to 40% for the NBA and NFL and stuff like that. And then 50% for the NHL, right? So I assume it's probably closer to that 30 to 40% since there's pay-per-view mixed in. Um, but I don't know what the final numbers ended up being for uh, McGregor last or Poirier last weekend. Um, but I thought I heard something they were trending higher than uh, like Dana White said they were trending higher than the previous one. Right. With Yeah. With, Dana says that. I think it ended up being at number three uh, all time. OK. I think it okay, ended cool. up being number three. All so time. and the other one was number one. Uh, Connor yeah. Khabib is number one. Yeah, yeah. is number one. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it didn't end up being as good. And I'm sure Dana's not happy that, uh, you know, McGregor didn't win. Um, yeah. Because now, now the fight is going to be much harder to make. So is Khabib retired? In my opinion, yeah. 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 I, again, I've never Khabib spoken done. to Khabib. I've never, you know, I have zero interaction. So I'm speculating just as much as everyone else. But based off of the emotion that he showed, when you promise mom that you're not going to fight yeah. again, that means you're not fighting again. At least that's me. And in the way that I interpret Khabib as a, as a champion and, and as a person just from the outside, he seems to be a mom, dad, my village kind of guy and just the emotion that he's probably dealt with over the last year. If mom said, I don't want you fighting anymore right now, there's no fight on the table in the 155 pound division that should interest him. I mean, he's whooping like the top three dudes he's whooping and finishing inside two rounds. That's, That's what he's doing to the top three guys right now. So there's nothing really enticing. The only thing that I think would maybe tickle his ear a little bit is George St. Pierre at like a catchweight bout, maybe 165 pounds. His dad wanted him to fight GSP and his dad wanted him to get to 30 and 0. I don't know how, how serious his dad was about that, but I am fairly certain that if Habib retire or was to come out of retirement, it would only for BG, it would only be for GSP. I, I don't yeah. see any other matchup at 155 that interests him. See, I think about it the same way. I was, you know, the whole mom, like don't fight thing, I think is is 
you know, I, it's I, real. a lot of people are, yeah, it's real. People are, not, I, people are putting weight on it, but I think it's a lot more real than people even assume. Right. I think, uh, he's obviously close with his family and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's important. Um, I would have, I, I would have felt differently if McGregor won probably. Right. Because I think that would have been a fight that could have done some numbers and, and they would have, uh, you know, tried to figure out a way to put together. And the other thing that interests me was like, I see these videos of him having like closed door conversations with Dana White. I'm like, why is he here? What is he doing? Like, so that, that was like a little weird to me, but, um, yeah, I, I think sure that might've been, story. that might've been just like a courtesy thing to Dana White, like give yeah. Dana White his at bat. You know what I mean? Like we played yeah. 28 outs or, you know, 26 outs, you know, you get your at bat. So I'm going to give you your chance to sell me the fight. But every single thing we've heard based on speculation of Habib returning has not come from Habib's mouth. None of it. Yeah. It's from yeah. Dana White. It's from friends. It's from other fighters. Not a single word from Habib's mouth has been related to, oh, I'm still thinking about fighting. Oh, I'm still contemplating. Oh, I'm still staying in good shape. None of that. That's yeah. none of it. Every single thing we've heard from Habib has been related to, I promised my mom I'm not going to fight. I'm done fighting. I said I'm done fighting. Like all the words out of his mouth have been that way. So, yeah. You got to take him at his word. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's been that way his whole career. So I, I don't, maybe I'm, I'm more pessimistic than the general public, but that's just my opinion. Again, never talked to Habib, have no idea what he's thinking, but based off of what he says, he's not coming back. Um, I had um, something else for you here. I mean, this is a crazy week, and I, I feel bad that I'm taking you away from this, the stock market week because you're probably getting housed with a lot of stuff and content and the craziness. So as a kid who's 23 years old, I am just starting my like financial life, and I'm just starting my professional career. What's something I can do at my age to set myself up well for the future? I know you, and it's your brother, right? That's Anthony? Yeah, Anthony's my brother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I you both are big Bitcoin people. I don't understand an iota of it, but I'm an idiot. I'm like the least. I'm the most financially illiterate person ever. Like I'm just an idiot with it. But if you were to give me one piece of advice moving forward to to set myself up well, well, you know, what would it be? Yeah, I. Uh... I, I'll, I'll save you the pitch on Bitcoin. I think, um, That's fine. I think it, yeah, I think it would be smart to get educated on it and, um, you know, learn what it is and how it works and why it's important and everything. That's um, why I didn't even ask you to do it. Cause I'm like, you know what? He gets this all the fucking time. I'm not, no, I can't it's not, do this. It's not, even a, it's not even about that. It's more about me. Right. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go on someone's podcast and keep, uh, tooting the horn, but I'll, I'll let, maybe I can get Anthony to come on and, uh, and, That'd and be awesome. Um, That'd be awesome. Yeah. He'll definitely do it. But, uh, yeah, I think it's just getting educated. I think, I think what we've seen this week, right, is is proven that people are fed up. Um, I think people realize that a lot of what's going on is uh, rigged against them. They're at an uneven playing field. Uh, people are financially disincentivized, um, you know, to do well in, in investing. Um, you know, fifty percent of the country doesn't own stocks, right? So, like, there's obviously massive gaps that need to be filled. Uh, from a financial literacy standpoint in America. Um, so I think the number one thing is just getting educated, right? Like if you do that, you're ahead of the game, um, you know, buy stocks that you believe in. The easiest way to do it, right, is like one, what are the smartest people you know buying? Two, what do you use every day, right? So like that's the way uh, if, if you're going to buy stocks like and you don't know any fundamental analysis or anything like that, that's the easiest way to think about it. 
Um, but yeah, I, uh, I I'm a big proponent in in Bitcoin, um, and I think the least you should do is is you know try to get educated on and learn why it could be important because. With everything going on this week with, um, you know, GameStop and AMC and all these places and Robinhood, um, I think it's shown that people are uh, going to shift towards a decentralized system and something where they don't feel the cards are stacked against them. So if the game is rigged, and I was looking for a tweet and I saw it earlier now, I can't find it from you, where you said like, this week was black and white evidence. This is hard fact that the game is rigged, that the stock market is a rigged game, then why would we keep playing? Yeah. I mean, I think, right. The whole pitch is that it's a free market, but um, I, I, I've had a few different tweets. So I'm not sure exactly. Which yeah, one, I know. And there, I, there I, was, I literally uh, had it up and I now can't no, find no, it. Don't worry about it. I, I think that my general thoughts on it, right. Are that, um, you know, everyone's under the impression that it's a free market, right. That's what everyone's pitched. But this week yeah. we clearly were shown that it's not. So yeah. uh, Robinhood was, you know, other brokerages did it. So I don't want to just single out Robinhood, but they were the first mm-hmm. ones to kind of close mm-hmm. off the ability for people to buy these these stocks. Uh, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, but they were just protecting. You could sell them, but you couldn't buy them. And and for anyone who has any clue, like that just means the price is going down. Right. So like there's there's no bid. You can only sell them. The price is going to go down. Um, so they were only protecting, you know, some people out of that. Now they're saying it was liquidity issues. He said point blank on CNBC last night when he was asked that there weren't liquidity issues. So like, you know, someone's lying, someone's not doing whatever. I, I don't want to get into mm-hmm. um, Robin Hood specifically and why or why yeah. not they shouldn't have done something. But it's clear, right? Like, would would the game have stopped if hedge funds were making money? Or losing no money? chance. No. Right. So um, obviously people were losing a lot of money. People act like what they did on the on the Reddit message board was wrong, and to some degree it is, right? You shouldn't be manipulating markets. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's the right way to go. But hedge funds do this every day, and people are like, "Oh, they don't do this. They don't do this." Yes, they do. They have idea dinners. They all gather together. They put their ideas. They put massive amounts of capital behind them, and they make bets. And that's exactly what the guys on Reddit did. They just did it in a huge force, and they got the whole internet to do it. Um, so I think I think what we're seeing is people are kind of fed up, right? And if you go down Reddit, I posted one this morning on Twitter, like. There's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages of people that are still like really bitter over the financial crisis, right? Like they're like, my family got destroyed, all the stuff. Like, I don't care if I lose everything. I'm going in all the stuff. And like, I encourage people not to do that. Like that is, of course. yeah, you don't want to be like super emotional, obviously, um, especially when, when you're investing in companies like GameStop that are now, wor- GameStop, which are now worth $30 billion for some reason. Uh, but yeah, I mean, people are clearly fed up. They're they're tired of it, and um, I think we're just going to see a bigger shift towards uh, assets that can't be controlled by the government, can't be controlled by hedge funds, can't be controlled by regulation, all that type of stuff. Joe, thank you very much. I didn't even want to ask you about this week, but I was like, if I don't, that would be a mistake. I had to ask you about it a little bit. Yeah. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the information. Thank you for the content on a daily basis. It's really good. It's really interesting. I'm legitimately just a fan just as i as a consumer as a competitor almost i enjoy it it's really really good i encourage everyone listening everyone watching whatever it may be check it out because it's some of the best stuff right now on twitter so um and i i genuinely believe that thank you so much for the time uh where can people follow you where can they subscribe where can they get the the newsletter yeah, first off, thank you for having me. I had a good time. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, you do a great job on not only Twitter yourself, but the podcast, everything. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I think it's really good. So keep it up. 
Uh, as for following me and stuff, most of my stuff's on Twitter uh, at Joe Pompliano. You'll find me, and then I run a newsletter. Uh, if you go to my Twitter profile, it's in the bio, but you can go to readhuddleup.com, and that's that's where you can subscribe. I hopefully you know down the line we can do this again and whenever something comes up i mean you're my guy on this like if if there's some money related in sports you're my guy for it so hopefully we can make this happen again yep let me know i'm happy to do it yep thank you bob appreciate you this is 137 p.m own your future start this minute 137 p.m is a gallery media group original production